sorry I don't love you A phrase I've grown accustomed to Cause with you if something isn't wrong Something isn't wrong Something isn't right Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is back this week and Max Mallet is returning to talk more comics. Maybe one day, Max, we will have you on and discuss something other than comics, but you and I have quite a few comics in common, so we'll see if we get around to that, but how are you doing today? I'm doing alright, thanks, Deanna. Yeah, uh, we could mix it up at some point, but uh, we both read similar comics and uh, we are... um, yeah, uh, I don't know where I'm going. I- I'm just pretty <laughs> pumped to talk about uh, Astonishing because I-, I really enjoyed this book. And uh, yeah, we can talk about movies or video games or whatever another time. Yeah, so today we're talking about Astonishing X-Men Volume 1, and this is the gifted storyline by Joss Whedon. And on art, we have John Cassidy. For colors, we have Laura Martin, and the letterer is Chris Eli... Apollos, I hope I, I'm probably not pronouncing that right. Let's be honest. I don't know if I ever pronounced some of these creators' last names right, but I apologize if the, I mispronounced that. It seems like it's Greek, so I probably did mispronounce it. Yeah, you got the nationality, so there you go. It pays off to have a couple Greek, Greek friends from high school, so you generally know what last names look like. <laughs> Definitely. So, Max, we both read this on Marvel Unlimited, and, you know, I was skimming back through it, and I don't know if this happens for you when you read on an iPad or a tablet or something, but the app kept crashing on me, so it was kind of frustrating to go back and skim through this, but I did make my way through it, and do you plan to buy Marvel trades, or are you sort of okay with just reading on Marvel Unlimited right now? Because for me, Marvel Unlimited makes the most sense right now. You know what? It's it's interesting. Um, there are a few that I want to have. For example, I have a Planet Hulk. Uh, it's, it's not really a trade. It's, it's I guess you'd call it an omnibus. It's very large. Um, okay. For, for certain, certain books, like Old Man Logan, even though I didn't like it that much, Planet Hulk... Certain important storylines, I like to have the trade. But now, like, so I read all of Marvel on MU, and I'm about to catch up on the most recent trade of Saga. And a part of me is like, man, like, I'm just so used to reading on my Nook now that it's going to be strange reading Saga, like, in paperback. And I used to be the opposite, but I think slowly I'm, I'm just enjoying the Nook more. So... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep going with the trades for now, um, unless the financial situation uh, drastically changes soon. Yeah, and for me, the reason I like reading on my iPad so much, too, is that I don't have to have the light on to read. So I can just like literally read comics until I fall asleep. <laughs> exactly. So it's definitely pretty nice to have Marvel have this, but we're going to go ahead and move on to Astonishing X-Men right now. And we're just going to do this the same way we did our Darth Vader episode, which if anyone hasn't listened to that, I highly recommend you first read the comic and then check out the podcast. But issue one, this comic sort of just really stands out on first glance. You know, I agree with you that this cover is really iconic. So since you brought up this point in the notes, though, I will let you describe it to the listeners sure uh so i've been in an attempt to better understand art i'm starting with 
trying to dissect covers a little more. This one, uh, even if you've never read Astonishing X-Men, you'd probably recognize this image of it's Wolverine's fist wearing his blue glove and his claws are, are um, extended and the light is reflecting off of the middle claw, which produces an X. And it's very, very cool. Um, it kind of tells you that this book is going to uh, have some action in it, but it's also, there's not too much going on. It, it's a still image, and uh, I, I like that, because it's, you don't have to look all over the page like you do with, say, some X-Men covers or some Avengers ones, things of that nature. And especially with team books, you can sort of have a lot going on in a cover too. So it's nice to see them sort of just really simplify things for the first cover. Yes. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think every cover in of these six in this first trade uh, focus on just one or two members. That's it. Yeah, I believe so. And this first issue, I wouldn't call it an X-Men reboot because there's a lot that's happened and it's sort of just a fresh start. I guess you can say for this team, they're still, you know, trying to figure things out, figure out who exactly the team is going to be comprised of. And there's a lot of tension. And in this first issue, you know, we have Logan coming in and just attacking Cyclops. <laughs> yes. And there's not a whole lot of context for why Cyclops and Emma Frost are an item here. And we can infer that Gene uh, Grey has recently passed on, and if you know anything about the X-Men, Wolverine and Gene Grey sort of had a thing, at least Wolverine had a thing for her, um, and uh, Wolverine doesn't seem too pleased with uh, Scott or uh, Cyclops moving on so quickly. But as a new reader, or as someone who has not read a lot of X-Men, uh, which is how I would describe myself, I, I knew this just because I, I already had background info on the X-Men, but if you were coming in cold with not a whole lot of background, you'd be a little bit lost. Yeah, and I haven't read too many X-Men comics either. I would say I largely know my X-Men knowledge from the movies, and I haven't even seen all of the movies. I don't think, you know, I got around to watching the last one, X-Men Apocalypse, which... I'll probably do it at some point. It's just, you know, I'm not really in a rush for it. and You're not missing much, frankly. <laughs> That's why I'm not in a rush. That's what I've heard. So I think with this first issue, they just do a great job of showing sort of the in-between place that the team is in right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, you're getting to know the team members. You see that they are both a fighting force, but also teachers at a school. Uh, so this isn't, you know, a collection of, of uh, Iron Mans and Thors who are basically adventure heroes for, for hire, uh, like thrill seekers. Yeah, these guys are thrill seekers too. But um, they, to me, they feel a little bit more grounded than, say, the Avengers or the Justice League. Right. And I do want to note the very first page of this comic, too, because it doesn't have anything to do with the team, but it's sort of j just like this frightening nightmare that a child is having in it, you know, continues on to page two, but it isn't the full page there. And it's just a very 
intense way to start off the book. Yes. It, it, if you didn't know what you were reading, you would assume this is a horror comic. Right. Uh, the first words of this series are, Mommy is screaming, her screams are yummy, Daddy is next. Uh, and you come to find out that it's uh, this is a young mutant whose uh, ability, I guess, is to transfer her dreams to reality. So when she has a nightmare, it actually happens. That is definitely terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's... The, the first page is terrifying, and, uh, I mean, poor kid. Like, you know, uh, if, if I were her, I, I might want a mutant cure. So uh, I can definitely uh, appreciate the nuance that comes a little bit later in the trade. Yeah, and that mutant cure is basically what this whole first story arc is really about. You know, that's the the main story that they're getting at here. And do you have any other thoughts on issue one, or do you want to move on to issue two? Uh, we can move on to issue two. Uh, the um, one thing I want to say is I think it's like the second to last page or so where we see okay. a, a splash page of the whole team in their suits. Uh, I believe that Grant Morrison had written the previous X-Men storyline from 2000 or so to 2003 or four. Okay. And this was a reaction to that because they were all in black leather, uh, kind of like we remember from the, the early X-Men films. And this is more of a nod to the comics fans. You have Wolverine in his blue and yellow. Uh, and the whole team, except for Emma, really is in blue and yellow. Uh, and uh, it, it's kind of a, a cool nod. Yeah, and, you know, they have these new shiny costumes and everything, which is just sort of a good way to start off a new team, too. <laughs> Absolutely. So for issue two, here those tensions start to rise a little more between the teams. You know, you can see it with Emma and Kitty, most notably, I would say. And I wouldn't say, you know, it looks like there's about to be a cat fight or anything, because that would probably feel like it would be beneath both of those characters to have them serve that sort of purpose. It's one thing for Wolverine to pick fights, because that's sort of what he does. But to just have, you know, the leaders basically fighting for no reason i'm really glad they didn't go that route with emma and kitty theirs is more of a verbal tension yes yes that's for sure uh so emma and kitty are two very different characters i personally have pretty vague familiarity with both but pretty quickly what you can infer in the second issue is uh kitty is more likable right you'd rather be friends with her She's, uh, it seems, a little younger, more naive and idealistic, whereas Emma is colder, um, no pun intended, uh, and she is probably more capable of making the hard decision if the time comes, and she's more hardened. So that clash is pretty apparent pretty quickly. Yeah, and there's always going to be this sort of distrust between a lot of the team members and Emma simply because she was playing for the other team before. So you never really know with a character like that what they're going to end up doing. Yeah, absolutely. And by the other team, I, I, I believe you're referencing Magneto. Yes, the bad guys. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and in this, we get an appearance from Lockheed, which is the little dragon that you know, Kitty seems to always have at her side pretty much whenever they are going out and 
doing mission-like things. So that was just a nice little extra because in issue one, she mentions that, you know, oh, Lockheed hasn't made it here yet. And then they don't bring Lockheed in until the second issue. So not quite everyone is where they are supposed to be in the first issue. And I think giving us little pieces along the way was a good move too. Yes, absolutely. I like Lockheed. I like what a creature like Lockheed does for the story. Gives a, a, puts a little bit of levity and uh, an otherwise uh, pretty dark tale. Right. And it's it's just kind of fun. Um, it's it's not so out there as to be absurd. Uh, it's it's just a a fun character that's a little bit lighter. Yeah, and in this issue too, we have Beast meeting with Doctor Rao, who is the doctor who has the mutant cure and they go back basically so they've known each other before it's not like they are unaware of each other and who they are so it was just a nice little moment to see him sort of not tell anyone about this and be like okay I know this person let me see if I can get through to her and she ends up giving him a sample yes given his appearance you wouldn't necessarily know it but Beast does come across as the smartest member of the team by a pretty good margin. Right. Uh, I, I believe he is a scientist. So yeah, I, I like that they are able to um, obviously you know, show him in action, but also show that despite this character's appearance, it's a very multidimensional character. Yeah, and even during the story arc, he sort of talks about how he can end up being very cat-like in <laughs> he doesn't want that to happen. So... He sort of has multiple things to worry about with being Beast and being a scientist. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's one page I would like to talk about specifically regarding um, the artwork and basically how it comes across. Uh, if you're on Marvel Unlimited, it's page 10. It's There's no dialogue. It's uh, five panels showing... Uh, the X-Men interfering in a hostage crisis, and it shows how each enters. Beast comes in, you know, kind of very cat-like through the window and takes out a guard. Uh, Cyclops blasts through his laser beams, uh, and Cassidy's pencils and Laura Martin's colors, particularly when Cyclops does an I-beam blast, is, is amazing. The I-beam is a very like Ferrari red. Right. However, when it goes through a, like a, an enemy combatant, there's a sort of like granular effect uh, that both Cassidy and Martin put into play, and it looks really, really cool. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of whenever he does that in this particular series. Uh, so you see him blasting through a wall, taking out some people. You see Wolverine coming through the ceiling, landing on someone. Uh, Emma Frost uh, hardening and taking out a guard, and then Kitty coming up through the floor. And it's very cinematic, but I gotta say, it would I think it would be hard to... Like, I'm trying to imagine this panel in a film, and I think that this actually works better in a comic, and would be really complicated in a movie scene. Yeah, and a lot of special effects would have to go into this, and there's already a lot that go into any superhero movie in general. And I think this is where the comics can sort of really thrive with specific stories because they don't need to 
rely on CGI or special effects. If an artist can draw something, they can use it. And that gives them a lot more leeway for what they can and can't do. I mean, I can't even think of something they wouldn't be able to do necessarily in comics. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the fact they don't necessarily have a budget with this, they're able to create something gorgeous that would be very hard to replicate in live action. Yeah. Well, do you have any other notes on issue two before we move on? One thing. Okay. I I, I get that because of Wolverine's power, his healing factor, that, you know, he can get beat up more than other people. But in every Wolverine or X-Men comic that I've read, like, he's just treated like a rag doll. He's always getting hurt in ways that would kill anybody else. And it's cool the first couple times, but it gets old relatively quickly, in, in my opinion. That's actually a good lead-in to issue three, because in this issue, we see him fighting yet another teammate of his. So even though he is most definitely a fighter, I think they are sort of just using that almost as... I don't want to say it's a cop-out, but it's just like an advantage that the team doesn't need to use every single time they go up against other people because you see it when he fights his own team members. They aren't using him necessarily in that same way. And I don't know if that's simply because he's fighting team members and not enemies or what, but if they could just show him fighting more in this way when he's fighting enemies, I think that would better serve the character. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In in this trade in particular, uh, he's uh, Wolverine is very hot headed. Definitely uh, has some aggression. He needs to let out. Yeah, and one of the other things I really love that comes with issue three is a little more of that comedic relief they put in with the danger room. It's set up like this giant tea party, basically, <laughs> and you know that it, yeah. it's like the table is super tall, and there's this giant teddy bear that Wolverine ends up just sitting in, <laughs> and earlier we see them sitting on Hawaii, basically, like literally sitting on the islands because they didn't make it to scale. <laughs> and yeah. it's just <laughs> one of those things that, like Lockheed, brings this little extra comedic value to a comic that is taking on a very serious matter. Yes, and it, it kind of, uh, it, it counteracts a lot of the like really hostile testosterone that Wolverine in particular brings to the comic. So, yeah, it's definitely a, a, uh, a great cooling effect to counteract the heat that he brings. Yeah. I, I really, I really appreciated that, uh, the, uh, the tea room shtick with the danger room as well. Yeah, and why don't we talk about Ord here for a bit, because he is the big bad for this story arc, basically, while Dr. Rao is the one working on a mutant cure. She doesn't want to use it for quite the same purpose that he does and you know i know you have a little bit to say on the way his character was drawn and everything in this story yeah so uh ne- i never heard of ord before i'm not sure about you um but it's uh, sort of like a generic meh villain uh not terribly exciting if, if you ask me uh, he's an alien in uh sort of gladiator slash Roman armor looking attire. But on page eight in issue three, you have like a uh, half page spread uh, of just Ord's face up close, kind of snarling. 
and he looks like something out of a Rob Zombie film. Uh, he's nearly hairless with a few stray hairs coming out of his his skull. And he has kind of like gray zombie-like skin. And he's just, he's pretty gross. But uh, Cassidy and, and Martin do a great job at uh, uh, designing his outfit and his face. Uh, so kudos to them. But it's, uh, I didn't think I'd, I'd come across anything this gross uh, in the first trade of the series. But I was wrong. I think with his character, too, is that in this specific story, he's basically wanting to get rid of all the mutants. But, I mean, we get a reason later for it, why he's sort of more tame than most villains seem to be. And a mutant cure, it's just, it's a good storyline, but I don't know if it's a good villain storyline, because while not all mutants want to completely be erased there are some who don't want to be mutants so it's like you you kind of have this 50-50 chance of upsetting a mutant or making them happy <laughs> and it's just something that sort of made his character fall a little flat even with the explanation that we get in a few more issues yeah i i agree that's a good point um i i didn't even think of, of uh the fact that yeah, like a human villain can be menacing with the mutant cure, but he comes across as very powerful. Like he physically can handle the X Men, right? To to a stalemate, if not defeat them. Uh, and so, once he demonstrates he can do that, this whole mutant cure thing seems like a little bit below his game. Yeah, and I know you wanted to bring up the point too that with Wolverine fighting beast it was more so because he wanted beast to get rid of the cure and everything and beast sort of wants the cure for himself because like i mentioned earlier he could just fall into that cat-like state at pretty much any moment and he doesn't really have any control over it but if he goes back to you know being his human self he can he'll still have his brain power and everything to help do good yes and he he mentioned how he once had fingers that could hold and a mouth he could kiss and all that sort of uh you know pretty sentimental stuff so you really feel for the guy uh and uh Wolverine's logic is if one of the kids in the school wants to give her their powers that's one thing but you're an X-Men damn it uh if one domino falls the whole structure does. And I see where he's coming from, but it's also not his place to tell Beast what he can or can't do with his body, right? Um, that's where I'll ultimately come down on. So in, in this particular argument, I, I love Wolverine as a character, but I, philosophically, I just, I just think he's wrong. So yeah, Team Beast. <laughs> yeah, and we both enjoyed the moment where Emma you know, makes that psychic connection with the two and basically just gets them to stop fighting because they've already gone through at least one or two walls and the students have seen them fighting. And while some of the students might think it's quite cool, you know, Emma doesn't want them doing that in front of the students, let alone probably destroying the school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of, um, you know, low level collateral damage going on in the school. And I, I like, I think it's in this issue where the kids go, these teachers fight all the time. Cause this is pretty awesome. 
and uh, uh, Emma getting them, uh, mind controlling them and getting them to bow and make nice is uh, pretty cool. Uh, it's a cool remedy to uh, their hostility towards each other. Yeah, and that sort of leads us into the next issue where the X-Men head out on a mission to find out who is being used as the test subject, which initially they think it's Jean Grey and, you know, it doesn't end up being her, but it's still one of those moments where you're like, okay, are they going to bring her back this soon? And I think they do a nice job and it was very smart of them to not make it her, to make it someone they didn't even know existed, basically. I agree. Uh Jean would have been very predictable. She's a has a crazy amount of power, and it also would have been um, it would have been tough going forward if it had been her, right? To to have villainous characters that could hang with her. So I think that Cassidy um, and Whedon do themselves a favor by um, going in a different direction. Yeah, and even though Jean isn't back, they still do get another X-Man back in Peter, who is also Colossus, because Kitty goes through the bottom floor and she finds herself in this very, very dark space for quite a while until she finally finds the sub-basement that she thinks was, you know, I forget the exact number, but probably like about 100 feet down, which... That's probably roughly, you know, somewhere between eight to ten stories, depending on how high you're going based on ceiling height and everything. Mm -hmm. So it's a good way underground there. And that's where she ends up finding Peter. Yes. And I, I love the atmosphere right before, during, and after you find out that it's Peter. I guess an alarm has been tripped and everything looks infrared. And a guard shoots at her, and because of her power set, she's able to have the bullet pass through her with no pain. And you see it cling off of something. Yeah. And the next page is a full page spread of Kitty with Colossus in his metal form behind her, looking really pissed. Right. And the artwork is, again, like, throughout this series, the artwork is, is pretty great. But the... The red light and the reflective shine off of Colossus just makes him look all the more menacing. And it's just so cool. Yeah, and we actually get that sort of red tone in the infrared light and everything in quite a few pages in various issues. So it's something they definitely kept as a theme throughout this story arc and everything. And I think that was a really well done thing. They didn't overuse it too much in my opinion, and they used it at the right moments, too. Yes, these are moments of um, pretty high emotion and also uh, duress. So credit again to both uh, Whedon and Cassidy for having the writing and the art intersect in such a way. Yeah, and we should mention that while they are out on this mission, Ord shows up at the school and only the students are there. You would think that, you know, the X-Men might learn by now to leave someone with the students because, you know, without Professor Xavier there, it's like they aren't 
that well versed with their own powers yet and they have no clue who is an enemy and who isn't just yet unless you know there was something big that happened and it ended up on the news everywhere so it's just like really you're going to leave these kids by themselves <laughs> yeah that's uh, pretty questionable although you know it's it's a big school so storm and uh nightcrawler and the rest could be elsewhere i suppose true but yeah but yeah i mean we we don't hear from them in uh this trade so for all we know they're out on a mission somewhere else uh and uh yeah pretty irresponsible teachers not to uh, have a couple couple of uh mutant bodyguards behind yeah and you know there's a huge difference between all the various you know superhero teams so to speak and you know the big ones are x-men avengers and justice league and even then you know, the Avengers might bring on some younger heroes, but it's not really, you know, like the Avengers school of heroes or anything like that. And I think they do a great job of showing, like you said in the notes, how the X-Men sort of have these other responsibilities. Yes. Yeah. They are just a lot, even though they're mutants with very cool and often bizarre abilities, you can identify with them more um, than you can with, say, I love the character to death, but it's hard to identify with Tony Stark um, or Bruce Banner. It's it's just, you'll never be as rich as Tony Stark, and you'll never be an invincible green monster. So these guys are just a lot more identifiable. Yeah, and all of the Colossus stuff in this issue rolls over into the next issue when he fights Ord and it's sort of just this really great moment where you finally see Peter freed from that sub-basement level. Yeah, especially given that uh, he was held against his will to uh, be experimented on for, I think, over a year. Very satisfying to see him escape and uh, it looks like punch Ord directly in the spine. So very satisfying and difficult to feel sorry for Ord, given the circumstances. Yeah, and I think this issue might have been one of the slower moving issues because I feel like a lot of it takes place in the same area and a lot of it does end up being fighting. And, you know, Emma has some words for Dr. Rao. And while she never is violent towards her, really, it's just one of those verbal things again, like when her and Kitty were having that verbal tension, it's like you could tell what Emma wanted to do, but she was trying to compose herself and just use her words instead. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely, uh, it, it is a slower issue, like you said, but um, that's okay because of the amount of passion and emotion that comes out during this issue. I, I think yeah. it perfectly balances well. Um, and speaking of, uh, emotion and passion, when Colossus escapes and reunites with the team, in a normal superhero comic, it's kind of just, okay, this person's back with the team, you know, welcome back, pat on the back, uh, then let's get to the next part of the story. But I kind of linger on it a little more here, because given that the X-Men are basically an analogy for history's many demonized groups, groups of people. The X-Men, like, Magneto's backstory is that he was a Holocaust victim. Um, 
the X-Men could be stand-ins for African-Americans during Jim Crow or the LGBTQ community in the 1980s, uh, given that they represent the other. The fact that Colossus was experimented on for a year against his will takes on a new connotation. So when he's reunited with the team and uh, not dead as they had feared, it has more emotional punch than I think it would in another superhero comic. Yeah, and they still manage to throw in some humor with it, too, because they show you everyone's face when Colossus is standing behind Ord, and Wolverine just sort of has this, like, terrified and bewildered look on his face that just makes that moment so much better, too. Yeah, because he's not scared of much. Right. So for him to to have an oh-crap look on his face should definitely tell you something. Yeah, exactly. And that brings us into the final issue of this storyline. And this is where we find out, you know, we start to find out who Ord is working with. And it turns out, you know, it's technically S.H.I.E.L.D., but also Nick Fury had no clue. So it's actually the sword branch of S.H.I.E.L.D. And, you know, there's even that comment about, Oh, governments and their acronyms, basically. <laughs> and I just really enjoyed that moment, too, because they're still finding these ways to put those little doses of humor into this, even though you know the X-Men are infuriated when they find this out. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like you've said a couple of times, among all the, you know, sort of uh, complicated government hoopla and darker themes of the story, uh, they get to inject a fair amount of humor. And it's page five, where, so Ord has been subdued, uh, and uh, Nick Fury tells the X-Men that he has diplomatic immunity. Uh, and we don't exactly have to go into why, it's a, it's somewhat long-winded, but this is a, a panel that zooms in on Wolverine's face, and he's snarling. And he has one eye is like very slit and the other one is pretty wide-eyed show that he's just like full of rage and can't control his his facial spasms, I guess. And he's all he's saying is diplomatic, expletive, expletive, expletive immunity. And it looks like he's shouting it. And like in that moment, like we are all Wolverine. Like we're all pissed that this guy has diplomatic immunity. And uh, it's it's just pretty humorous the way that it comes across uh, visually. Right, and he, Ord still ends up betraying them too because then he takes Tildy when things get really chaotic and they're sort of like all under attack again. And I feel like, you know, this might have been one of the better moments for him as a villain in this storyline because he actually does something that's pretty villainous <laughs> and it's not just about the cure in that moment and Tildy is the girl from the beginning who has the nightmares that come true basically and there's this page it's a splash page of Colossus throwing Logan at the ship and it's just a fantastic page and I really liked how before that page you know Wolverine was like I have two words for you and then you just see him you know like mid-air after Colossus had already tossed him yeah 
it's a really cool splash page. Uh, it's presented horizontally in Marvel Unlimited, so I'm guessing that in a trade... It's this two pages, two, two, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it has to be. Uh, and I, I like that um, Cassidy takes the, the artistic liberty of um, shit, like cartoonizing Wolverine to a degree. He's, he's a pretty stocky guy to begin with, but he really looks like a, a creature <laughs> in this splash page, uh, like a, just like a ball of muscle that Colossus has hurled at the spaceship that Ord is trying to escape in. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's very amusing. Plus, by giving Ord his sort of villainous moment, they give Wolverine this chance to sort of do what Wolverine does best. I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, um, it's really cool. And there are a few moments in this trade that are kind of disgusting. Yeah. And this, th this is one of them. Uh, <laughs> you don't really see this in any X-Men films. And I, I guess uh, something that Fox is against. But so Wolverine smashes through the glass. And Ord is terrified. And in, in being terrified, he opens his mouth to scream. Wolverine shoves his fist into Ord's mouth and says, You bite, I'll heal. I pop, you won't. Land. Yeah. And it's just like, it's satisfying, it's funny. It's pretty gross, but uh, it's a, a pretty cool way to uh, to end the scenario. And yeah, Ord doesn't have a choice unless he wants Wolverine's claws to uh, destroy him. <laughs> yes, yes, to to put him to give him the hard goodbye. Right. So uh, that's how Wolverine is able to uh, save the young mutant and uh, get Ord into custody. Yeah, and to briefly backtrack, sort of going on the, you know, harsh, gross moments that we get with some of this, when the mutants sort of just blast through, because like I mentioned earlier, you have a 50-50 chance of them either wanting the cure or not wanting it. The ones who do want it sort of are trying to take over the facility and get it for themselves. And you pointed this out that there's a mutant with a head in his abdomen, which I did catch that. And I was just like, do I know who that mutant is? Or did they just like make up a new one for this purpose? Oh yeah. And so that's the grossest part of this whole story. It's like this muscled guy with its, its head in his stomach, like exactly between the, the belt and the chest. And it's just, uh, what, what is that villain? Modoc? who's basically like a short, stubby head with like tiny limbs. The face reminds me of Modok a little bit, but in a like a powerlifter's body. And it's just gross. Like I don't want to see teeth through your stomach is supposed to be. Yeah, Modok is the one you were referring to, and that is one funny looking villain. Yeah. So <laughs> so gross. <laughs> It's definitely interesting how they chose to finish off this issue with sort of that and then the Wolverine epic scene, basically. And I think they did a really good job making this a storyline that even if you don't really know what happened 
to Jean Grey, you get the idea throughout it. And I wouldn't say this is necessarily the best jumping on point for X-Men. I'm sure there are plenty of other stories that you can dive into because there have just been so many different X-Men stories over the years. And I have not read enough of them to, you know, definitively say like, hey, check this one out first before you dive into anything else. But this one is one that you can definitely fairly easily get into if you're interested. I agree with that. This has been my jumping on point. This and um, Uncanny X-Men by uh, Chris Claremont. They both came out at about the same time. Uh, they're 2004 renditions. I like this better. Claremont's writing is very good, but the science gets pretty wonky and dense. Uh, whereas this story flows a little more seamlessly. But I do get the feeling that if you wanted a starting on point, that you should prob If you want more modern art um, and you don't want to go back to, say, the 80s, frankly, like I, I respect what Claremont and the gang did back then. It's hard for me to get into that art style. So I think if you're like me and you want, you know, more modern X-Men stories, you probably start with um, Grant Morrison's all-new X-Men from 2000. And then you work your way from there. Because I, I think that informs you a little more about what's going on here. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps up everything we have to say about the individual issues. But I do want to do a little bit of a wrap up here just with the story in general because we talked quite a bit about the art already but I do want to note that Whedon's writing in this is really great too and you know we've seen him do tv shows movies we know this guy can write and we mentioned the humor being added in and that's in large part due to his writing style and everything and I think this was definitely a great creative team to just bring this whole story to life. Yes, absolutely. Whedon's writing, it's interesting because he produced the first two Avengers films, right? So, and those, those movies are pretty light on tone uh, compared to many other stories in the superhero genre. And so I was initially surprised at how dark the first issue of the series was. Uh, I expected it to be closer in tone to Spider-Man. And this was closer in tone to Batman, I would say. Um, but I, I was pleasantly surprised because he, he really mixed in playfulness and, and levity, uh, sprinkling it in to a story that's otherwise, frankly, more adult. And I, I appreciated that balance. Yeah, and he continues on after this story arc, too. He doesn't do all of the issues of this run of Astonishing X-Men, but I believe he does somewhere in the mid-20s, probably around 24 issues. So have you read through those, or did you just start with this and haven't continued reading just yet? So uh, I'm chronologically working my way to the present day with Marvel Unlimited. Not with every series, but with... Uh, well-regarded ones. Okay. I have so uh, Whedon and Cassidy did the first four trades of the series, and I have read the first two. So this one and the following. Um, I'm gonna give this one an eight out of ten. The next one is a nine. So 
I haven't read the whole thing, but he improves on his work in the first one. And it gets darker, too. But uh, Cassidy's art is, I think, perfect for the story that Whedon wants to tell. Right. It's sort of a blend of realism and house style. And then as far as Whedon's writing is concerned, I think he he does a good job at giving every character their own voice. Like, Wolverine is gruff and doesn't take crap. Uh, Emma... Um, I frankly don't, like, yeah, she's beautiful, but other than that, I don't know what Scott sees in her. And uh, Whedon, you know, he, he gives you enough reason, reason to uh, not want to trust her. Um, Scott is sort of like the Batman of the group in that he is, all right, here's your job, here's your job, let's get it done. Uh, actually, uh, Cyclops <laughs> makes Wolverine seem playful in, in terms of his character. And then uh, giving Kitty and, and uh, Colossus and Beast their own agency as well. Uh, some writers aren't very good at making characters differentiate from one another. And uh, so far in this series, I think Whedon's been pretty good with that. How, how do you feel about uh, his overall writing? And uh, are you excited to read the next trade? I've actually read through the first 22 issues. I think I thought it stopped at 22, but it actually stops at 24. So I'm going to have to go back and sort of get those last two read there. But I really enjoyed this run because like you, I haven't read too much X-Men. This isn't the first thing I've read. I've more so read things here and there because for a little while I was trying to follow the history of that marvel will do on their website like right now they're doing the history of spider-man leading up to spider-man homecoming's release and it's a lot to keep up with so i you know would only get part of the way through so i've read you know an issue of a plus x which is you know an avengers and x-men team up and then i've read some solo wolverine stories which you know the episode that went up before this is actually on all new Wolverine with Laura Kinney as Wolverine. So I've definitely read some stuff here and there for the X-Men. And I think this might be one of my favorite things that I have read so far having to do with the X-Men. That's cool. Uh, it, it's a very well-regarded series and uh, it's uh, pretty easy to see why. It's not my favorite thing that I've read on Marvel lately on Marvel Unlimited lately. Right. But I, if, if someone says to me, this is my favorite Marvel series, I'm not going to argue it because it, it is quite good. Yeah, and there's so much to consume on Marvel Unlimited too. I believe this specific run, not just Whedon's run, but this comic run in general is about 68 issues. So at some point... I think I'll go back and see, you know, the next the next creative teams that took over after Whedon was done and sort of see how that plays off of what he started the series with. No question. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to read the whole thing. I, a part of me wants to because I, I like to be completionist. Right. But I kind of read stories based on writers and artists that I like. And I'm not sure exactly where... Oh, uh, I think once we get to issue 45, it looks like Greg Pak picks up on this. And Pak 
is a very well-respected writer. And then I think Marjorie Liu finishes up the series, and uh, she's well-known for a few indie comics as well. Yeah. Uh, but she also wrote a very well-respected X-23 run, which I'm looking forward to reading at some point. Yeah, and I actually did read the six-issue X-23 limited series run back in 2005. So, like I said, I have some random bits and pieces of X-Men characters here and there and very little of the full team, to be honest. So I think, you know, now that we've done this podcast, I do sort of want to go back and continue reading this, provided the app will stop crashing on me. I'll have to see, you know, what's going on there. I already tried restarting my iPad and everything, so we'll see how that goes. But do you have any final thoughts on this, Max? Uh, just that I'm you know, looking forward to concluding the run. Uh, it's one of the most well-respected Marvel runs from the 2000s. And uh, if you're listening to this and you are a uh, looking to get into the X-Men, it's not a bad place to start. It might not be the perfect place to start, but it's not a bad place to start, and it's, it's where I'm starting. Yeah. Although I hope if you are listening to this, you've actually already read this, because we definitely spoiled like everything for you guys. <laughs> this, this is true. This is true. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you're an art-centric person, Cassidy's pencils and Laura Martin's coloring are amazing. And then Whedon's writing is pretty stellar. So no matter what angle you approach a comic from, this will have something for you. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Max, for coming on. It's always a pleasure talking comics with you. And I know you tossed out a few more ideas. So we'll, we'll probably keep this comics theme going for a little bit here. And then, you know, maybe we'll take it off track with a movie or something. But again, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. And to our listeners, as always, thank you guys for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.